I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. Outside In is committed to journalistic rigor and transparency. To learn about the reporting process for this series, visit windfallpodcast.org. Heads up, there is one curse word in this episode. Okay, on with the show. The U.S. offshore wind industry is ready to launch. Right now, there are no grid-scale wind farms in American waters, but there are dozens of projects in line on the Atlantic coast, all waiting for federal approval. Altogether, these projects would do a lot to meet America's climate goals, enough potential energy to power two New York cities. Today, we're going to talk about the project at the front of the line and about how it powered through the forces that opposed it. But first... <clears throat> so, so I don't want to take too much of your time, and, and like I said, I've got a. We hope you'll allow us a small diversion into Joe McNamara's unlikely 15 seconds of fame. My name is Joe McNamara. I'm a state representative representing uh, Warwick and Cranston, the Patuxent Village area. I am also chairman of the Rhode Island Democratic Party. So, uh, in that role, you got the the honor of announcing the delegates for for Joe Biden. That is correct. Joe McNamara was one of the parade of state party chairpeople who appeared on Zoom last August to announce that then-candidate Biden had won the Democratic nomination for president. The DNC told him they wanted an uplifting personal story from the state. I said, that's what the DNC is stating. 
Here's what we're going to do. We are going to make a 30-something-odd second promotion for the state of Rhode Island. End of story. So here's my idea, and we went with it. Rhode Island, the ocean state, where our restaurant and fishing industry have been decimated by this pandemic. The scene is a beach. Joe is stage left wearing a button-down with the sleeves rolled up and sunglasses. I had my transition lenses on. I had meant to bring another pair of glasses so it wouldn't look like I had sunglasses. Next to him is a guy dressed all in black, black mask, black chef's hat. His shirt and hat say Iggy's. And down at belt level, he's holding a generous plate of fried calamari. Okay, cue Joe. Uh, Lucky to have a governor, Gina Raimondo, whose program lets our fishermen sell their catches directly to the public. And our state appetizer, calamari, is available in all 50 states. The calamari comeback state of Rhode Island casts one vote for Bernie Sanders and 34 votes for the next president, Joe Biden. wanted to hand his 15 seconds of fame to calamari, specifically Rhode Island's calamari industry. And it worked. The next day, Joe was on the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post. And we realized there were 100,000 hits on Rhode Island calamari within an hour. And it did exactly what we wanted to do. The internet ate it up. When Jimmy Fallon did it, he had the same color shirt. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. (laughs) If you Google Jimmy Fallon calamari. Calamari is the most perfect food in existence. It tastes like rubbery chicken circles that you left out in the rain. And we need a president that brings that rubbery... Promoting his state's small but significant calamari fishery is kind of a political project for Joe. In 2014, Joe sponsored a bill that made calamari the official state appetizer, though he was criticized for having given away free calamari to lawmakers right before the vote. And I said, listen closely, there was no squid pro quo related to that vote. (laughs) So, there's a reason we're telling you all this. It's because the latest reason the United States hit pause on launching the offshore wind industry was the calamari comeback. From New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Windfall, a special series from Outside In. I'm Annie Ropeek. And I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Last time, we told you about the epic failure of Cape Wind, the project that was going to be America's first offshore wind farm. That was something of a David and Goliath story, where David was a scrappy little wind developer and Goliath was all those billionaire opponents. Now the roles are reversed. This time, David is a scrappy little fishery in America's smallest state, and Goliath is the wind industry. On this episode, how American politics shifted that balance of power. At the end of 2017, Jim Gordon, the developer behind Cape Wind, gave up. But the federal government had already moved on. Before Jim Gordon pulled the plug on his project, the feds had launched their new strategy for offshore wind, 
a strategy that would hopefully avoid the conflicts that plagued Cape Wind. That process was called Smart from the Start, and the federal government designed it to pick places where the turbines would be out of the way. The result? It pushed the industry farther offshore, away from multi-million dollar seaside homes, away from pleasure boats and ferries, away from indigenous archaeological sites. Almost the only folks left in conflict with wind turbines are the fishing industry. My name's Norbert Stamps. I could throw three, four, five titles around, but the only one that means a shit to me is that I've been a commercial fisherman since 1972. This is a public meeting in 2019 of the Rhode Island Coastal Resources Management Council. We're in a 1970s-era university auditorium, fishermen lining up at the mic. They're speaking out against the first offshore wind project in line for the government's new approval process. It was a meeting where some fishermen thought they could make a last stand against the wind industry. I'm really not good at this stuff. My name is Josiah Dodge, which means nothing to anyone, really. I'm not a celebrity or a star. What I am is a member of a family that's been fishing in the state of Rhode Island since 1661. Think about that. That's 100 years just about before the Declaration of Independence was signed. When it comes to their symbolism, their cultural significance, and the soft power they wield, the fishing industry is a little bit like the coal mining industry. They're easy stand-ins for blue-collar workers who feel threatened by environmentalism writ large. Up before dawn, out for days at a time in foul weather, bringing home a domestic food through dangerous conditions. All these guys in this room, we grew up together. I fished with Heidi. I fished with Jerry Cavallo when I was 15. We're a family here. Families fight. But we're a family. This is a community. These fishers we're hearing from are mostly from Rhode Island, mostly from one fishery, squid, calamari. It's not the most profitable fishery in the country. In 2019, that was salmon, worth something like 20 times what squid brought in. Squid is literally and figuratively a small cephalopod in a big ocean. But in Rhode Island, it's the biggest fishery in the state. You, you pick the best squid fishing grounds on the eastern seaboard. This first big wind farm, it's called Vineyard Wind. Vineyard Wind is supposed to go right in the middle of those squid fishing grounds, where these fishers make their living in federal waters between Massachusetts and Rhode Island. The Wind Project is a partnership between two multi-billion dollar companies, a Danish investment firm and a Spanish firm that's the biggest wind energy producer in the world. So the squid boats are worried these developers, these powerful forces, will push them out. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what's known as an uprising. We, the fishing industry of the state of Rhode Island, refuse to be told that our businesses, our investments, our futures are worth less than what they actually are. All the while during this presentation, the executives from Vineyard Wind and their lawyers were simply standing in the back of the room. This feels in some way like a sign of maturity from the wind industry. In my two years of watching them wind their way through the regulatory process, I never once heard the team at Vineyard Wind get off script. Never heard them get into shouting matches during a media interview like Jim Gordon did during the Cape Wind saga. They stood, quietly, on the sideline, 
and took their licks. The first time I interviewed the CEO of Vineyard Wind, Lars Pedersen, was at this meeting. I caught up with him in a crowded hallway right after. Yeah, it's a big deal for us. It allows us to move forward with uh, what we believe is a very important project. 800 megawatts will generate a lot of clean, uh, affordable electricity to New England consumers and be basically a kickstart of an industry that will also generate uh, jobs. So it's a very important uh, date for us today. The whole exchange was three minutes, and he was very controlled, almost frustratingly even keeled, a complete poker face, never even hinting at dismissing the concerns of the fishing industry. We have learned quite a lot from this process on what the importance is from the fishing industry. There's parts of the fishing industry that wants to go in a particular orientation. There's also other parts of the fishing industry that want to go in the orientation that we have had. And it's a, it's a trade-off. Fishing is a very diverse industry. Um, Lars Peterson is a quietly significant figure within offshore wind, and he kind of embodies the change within the industry itself. He made a name for himself during his years working at a corporation called Danish Oil and Natural Gas. It's since rebranded itself as Orsted. In 2008, the company's CEO made a pledge to flip its business model from a portfolio dominated by fossil fuels to one dominated by renewables. Lars was part of a small team who were given six months to come up with a business plan that would make offshore wind profitable. Today, Orsted is the biggest offshore wind company in the world. Lars was given the reins of Vineyard Wind, the company that would build the first large-scale offshore wind farm here in America. Um, I think this is be a project that everybody will learn from. Being the first uh, definitely comes with uh, some challenges. Listening quietly while people trash your project at a public hearing is, in a way, a flex. It's an awareness that you know the rules of the game, that you're willing to wait it out. Unlike Jim Gordon and Cape Wind, Lars Peterson knew the steps Vineyard Wind had to follow. Because thanks to Smart from the start, there were steps to follow. Vineyard Wind bought the lease at the auction, submitted the plan, were getting an environmental review. The fishermen, they were a wrinkle, a hurdle to jump over and run past. That was the point of this meeting in 2019. Vineyard Wind was offering the squid fishers a payout, $17 million. The fishermen could express their frustration, but when it came down to it, they could just vote to take the money or not take the money. It sucks, but that's the reality, the way I understand it. We've been outmaneuvered, boys. The fishermen took the money. I remember at the time thinking, if we're just following this project through the regulatory process, this offshore wind series is going to be boring. The sense was, this is happening. Then it just didn't. Remember in the midst of the Cape Wind debacle, Congress passed a law, and that law handed the executive branch the power to write a whole new playbook for offshore wind. It was kind of a promise that if a company followed a series of predictable rules, the government would give a series of predictable responses. At least, that's how it was supposed to work. But the problem was that even with that new playbook in hand, the executive branch was only as predictable as the executive himself. We're doing it right. And, you know, our numbers environmentally right now are better than they've ever been before, just so you know. Because I'm an environmentalist. I am. Donald Trump was president at this time. 
Donald Trump, the climate change denier, who falsely claimed wind turbines cause cancer. Who sued Scotland for approving an offshore wind farm within sight of one of his golf courses. And who just generally seemed to kind of hate the things. They're noisy. They kill the birds. You want to see a bird graveyard? You just go. Take a look. A bird graveyard? Go under a windmill someday. You'll see more birds than you've ever seen ever in your life. So not pro-wind. This did not bode well for vineyard wind, which would need its final approval from the Trump administration. But it was hard to tell what the administration really thought. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Hey, Nate here. Have you ever dreamed of going on the voyages of some of the most famous and not-so-famous explorers in history? If so, then you should check out the Explorers podcast. Host Matt Breen takes you into jungles and frigid wastelands, across deserts and oceans, and to the top of great mountains as you explore the triumph, glory, and tragedy of each explorer. There are extraordinary stories of Shackleton, Magellan, Cook, Lewis and Clark, and so many other daring people from all across the world and from throughout history. Each explorer's story is told in rich, immersive detail, and each topic is given as much time as needed to tell the whole tale, ranging from 30 minutes to 10 hours. There's something for everyone. Find the Explorers Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or go to explorerspodcast.com to learn more. Remember in our first episode, that $400 million federal auction for offshore wind leases? That was under Trump's Interior Department. Their press release afterwards said, bidding bonanza in all caps with an exclamation point, quote, Trump administration smashes record for offshore wind auction. So Vineyard Wind was asking this man's government for permission to start construction. And that permission would open the door for the next wind farm and all the ones in line after. It would be a trailblazing moment for climate action in America, all down to the Trump administration. 
it seemed that we were headed for a collision of two non-negotiable truths of Republican politics. The unstoppable force that is support for energy companies who want to spend billions of dollars on American soil, speeding towards the heretofore unmovable object that is the party's dismissal or outright denial of the threat of climate change. Vineyard Wind thought that between doing lots of outreach, setting aside millions in mitigation money, and following the new federal law to the T, they were following all the rules of the game. But the fishing industry, thanks to their soft power, the currency their cultural symbolism carried in the Trump administration, had access to another set of rules. I started to see some reports out there about Vineyard Wind hitting a couple of snags in its permitting. Nicola Groom is a Reuters reporter, and she was the first to figure out what was going on when Vineyard Wind suddenly seemed to stall. What she found was the squid fishers. Nicola was looking at a meeting of a sub-sub-federal body that regulates fishing. They were one of the many groups of bureaucrats that get to provide input on projects like Vineyard Wind. Some officials actually announced uh, at that meeting that they uh, were not concurring with the design of the project that Boehm selected. It used to be many different agencies signed off on a project as big as Vineyard Wind. But Trump issued an executive order that was supposed to speed up environmental reviews for energy projects. It said a single agency would give the final sign-off. In this instance, it would be BOEM, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. But before BOEM gave the final yes or no on Vineyard Wind, it still needed to accept input from other agencies, including fishery regulators. And those fishery regulators didn't like what they saw in the proposal. The turbines were closer together than the fishing industry wanted. And uh, they were not oriented in the east-west direction that the fishermen preferred. Basically, the fishery managers thought the particular way the turbines were laid out would make it too hard to keep fishing in that area. Here's the ruling they sent to Bohm. No, we don't agree. That is not the design of the project that is best for the fishing industry. A proposed offshore wind farm off the coast of New Bedford has been stalled by the federal government. After months of waiting, with no official explanation of what was going on, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management suddenly announced it needed more time. As we first reported on Friday, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management said it would like to further review the 800-megawatt wind farm that would move Massachusetts toward clean energy efficiency. It was a curveball. The administration was cramming an extra, bigger hurdle into Vineyard Wind's approval process, a cumulative environmental review. They said before they approved Vineyard Wind, they were going to tally up the combined impacts of all the wind farms planned for the East Coast. They used the Vineyard Wind process to hit pause on the whole industry. So what was going on inside the Trump administration? Because this was not in the playbook. Was it politics? Did Donald Trump himself swoop in and put a halt to Vineyard Wind? We talked to a reporter who seemed to get closer to answering those questions than anyone. Ben Storo with E&D News submitted a Freedom of Information Act request to the Trump administration. It's, it's basically internal communications. It's heavily redacted. 
The request didn't show much. He got page after page of just black squares. But... The thing that caught my reporter radar was this record of decision um, for Vineyard Wind. And a record of decision is the last step in the permitting process. And it was just a cover page. One of the emails shows that Boehm was ready to move forward and give its final word on Vineyard Wind. But before they announced what that decision was, they turned around and said they were halting Vineyard Wind and the whole industry waiting behind it. If the staff thought, you know, they had enough information to publish a record of decision back in 2019, um, it suggests that there could be more political reasons for the delay. The implication was this concern from the fishers about the turbines upending their livelihoods, it registered with the Trump administration. They appeared to take both the rhetoric and the concerns of this blue-collar industry very seriously. Seriously enough to freeze the whole machine. Yeah, obviously that was a devastating blow to the Vineyard Wind 1 project as it was designed. I interviewed Lars Pedersen, the CEO of Vineyard Wind, again last summer about what this meant for the project. We had booked vessels, we had booked manufacturing slots, we had booked equipment. So being put on hold effectively meant that majority of those contracts had to be canceled. Has, has Vineyard Wind quantified how much that delay cost the project? Yeah, we have quantified that. But, uh, uh, but I don't get to know? No, that's right. <laughs> A multi-billion dollar company losing an undetermined amount of money perhaps is not something that has you shedding tears into your breakfast cereal, but it was more than that. Enough clean energy is queued for construction off the East Coast to power two and a half New York cities, enough to power all of New England on the hottest of days. And remember, in the scramble to prevent the worst effects of climate change, any delay for huge amounts of zero-carbon energy, that time matters. All of that potential was put on hold, and a new industry held its breath. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Windfall. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. And I'm Annie Ropeek. So the Trump administration put a hold on Vineyard Wind, and with it, the whole U.S. offshore wind industry. And that decision seemed rooted in Rhode Island, in the fears of squid fishermen. So we wanted to understand whether science confirmed those fears. What happens to fish, or fishermen, when you build a wind farm? I did a lot of reporting on this question, like the whole science reporter thing. Went out on a boat, talked to the very cool people doing the very cool science, people who are taking photos of the seabed, people who are exploring the effects of turbine noise and the radiation that power lines give off on marine life. One main takeaway, even in Europe, as their wind industry grew, they didn't do a lot of this kind of research. They've built more than 5,000 wind turbines, but only done around a dozen controlled studies. To sum up what I learned, well, here's what I asked scientist Kevin Stokesbury. Like, when it comes to what do we know, there's like way more that we don't know than what we do know, just because, like you said, a lot of those studies weren't done ahead of time. 
for 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 wind. Yeah, I mean that's true for fisheries too, and and and, and basically for science, which makes it why science is so interesting. That said, from the things we do know, there don't seem to be any glaring, flashing warning signs. In fact, the most persistent finding is that there tend to be more fish inside wind farms than outside. Maybe because in Europe a lot of wind farms are closed to fishing, but maybe also because of something called the reef effect. Sea life just likes to gather around stuff in the water. That's worked out great for sport fishermen at some wind farms, when it's a handful of people on a small boat fishing around a turbine with rod and reel. But commercial fishermen, whose whole livelihoods depend on big catches, could be a different story. Which brings us back to the squid fishers. The science may be ambiguous, but their minds are made up. The ocean looks like a big place, but for fishing it's not. Megan Lapp is the fisheries liaison for Sea Freeze Limited. They own a seafood processing plant onshore, but also operate two of the biggest trawlers in the Northeast. Imagine navigating a boat that big, dragging a huge net, sometimes a half a mile or more behind you. Now, add in wind turbines. Imagine that you're driving a Volkswagen Beetle through New York City with a hot air balloon attached behind you. And you've got to try to drive through the city and make turns and maneuver through the city without that hot air balloon touching a building. Good luck. These were the concerns that the Trump administration was hearing and responding to. So the administration's delay of vineyard wind entered its second year. But during that time, the wind developer was making the most of it. Two years is a long time in the fast-changing world of offshore wind. Yeah, if you talk to my engineering team, they will say it's a new project. Here's Lars Pedersen again in an interview just a few months back. We had to change the suppliers. We had to change the design. We had to change the orientation and the spacing between the turbines. When the project was put on hold in 2019, the project uh, quote-unquote died, and you had to reinvent the whole uh, project. The fact that Vineyard Wind had to basically start over from scratch meant that they were able to do things differently. They actually redesigned the whole layout of the project to make it more friendly to calamari. And it wasn't just Vineyard Wind. Four other developers, all the projects in the queue for Massachusetts and Rhode Island, all adopted the same layout. And another thing, during that delay, the newest model turbines came out. Offshore wind technology is still advancing so fast. Vineyard Wind could now generate the same amount of power with a lot fewer turbines, from more than 100 down to 62. This is where things stood in late 2020. Vineyard Wind had a whole new plan, and the Trump administration had signaled they weren't going to decide on the project until after the election. And then... Joe Biden has won the American presidential election. The BBC So Biden was set to be president after he campaigned on embracing climate action and renewable energy. Vineyard Wind's application was now in front of a lame duck and kind of hostile president, Donald Trump. And from the outside, this is where it felt like the project and the outgoing administration started playing tug of war. Vineyard Wind asked to pause its application. 
And then the Trump administration said, you can't pause it. You can withdraw it and start all over. Also, the Trump administration put out a legal memo that would have made it very easy to appeal the approval of any offshore wind farm. It felt like the Trump administration was tossing a grenade over its shoulder. And the fishing industry was pretty excited. It's like common sense. And for the first time, we are seeing some common sense in the process, and that is refreshing. (laughs) But as soon as Biden was inaugurated, Vineyard Wind announced it didn't want to pause its application anymore, and the Biden administration wiped the slate clean. They withdrew the legal memo, repudiated it, issued an executive order calling for all agencies to accelerate offshore wind permitting. By May, Vineyard Wind had its final permit. And the thing is, the result of the whole ordeal kind of confirmed the fishermen's worst fears. In the record of decision on Vineyard Wind, the Biden administration wrote that the wind developer wasn't allowed to lock any vessel out of the turbine area. But, quote, due to the placement of the turbines, it is likely that the entire area will be abandoned by commercial fisheries due to difficulties with navigation, end quote. Basically, the Biden administration acknowledged that fishing within the offshore wind farm might be a thing of the past. And the administration made one more decision around this time, kind of a symbolic one. All the time Vineyard Wind was negotiating with the fishers and the government, Gina Raimondo was the governor of Rhode Island. She and the fishermen had clashed before, and the fishers didn't like her. They spoke out against her in public meetings. They felt she'd ignored their concerns about wind. So Biden's elected, and who does he pick as his commerce secretary, the person who would also be the nation's top fisheries regulator? He tapped Gina Raimondo. Commerce Secretary Raimondo made a trip recently to New Hampshire, and I asked her, was she confident these wind projects could be done without hurting the fishing industry? I am. I am. I am confident because we've done it in Rhode Island. It, you have to be data-based and fact-based. It's critical to have a dialogue with the fishermen, but it is absolutely possible. It's a political statement one that seeks to put a lid on the uncertainty and conflict that will continue for fishermen around this project and all the next ones. Kevin Sullivan, uh, lobster gillnet, sakana. I really don't think that the Rhode Island fishermen need to take the blunt of climate control in general. Uh, It's not us. We're doing our share, believe me. And I also just don't believe that we can coexist at all. Vineyard Wind has cleared its last major hurdle. But the metaphor of a hurdle is maybe a telling one when you dwell on it. Do any of them ever actually stop the runners? Clearing the hurdles is the norm. It's what you expect. The offshore wind giants, Shell, BP, Equinor, Orsted, these are oil majors. 
they know how to clear hurdles. Fishermen? They've got their blue-collar symbolism and their soft power. Oil majors? They've got something else. Money. Which is to say, hard power. Next time on Windfall, who stands to profit? I'm a hippie from Vermont. I'm a, I'm a big believer in climate change and what's going on. Um, it's devastating, but on the up, up hand, it's, again, it's, it's money in my pocket and job security for, for myself and my people forever. This episode of Windfall was reported by Sam Evans-Brown. It was produced by Jack Rodolico and written by Sam, Jack, and me, Annie Ropeek. It was mixed by Justine Paradise and fact-checked by Sarah Sneath. It was edited by Erica Janik, Annie Ropeek, Justine Paradise, Felix Poon, Taylor Quimby, and Hannah McCarthy. Graphics for Windfall were created by Sarah Plord. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Special thanks to Miriam Wasser of WBUR and Craig Lamolt of WGBH. Thanks also to Krista Bank, Jean Flemma, Andrew Gill, David Bidwell, Henrik Lund, John Mitchell, Kellen Tansel Suddeth, and the Maritime Institute of Technology and Graduate Studies. The voices of the fishermen you heard in the public meeting were Norbert Stamps, Josiah Dodge, Kevin Sullivan, Jason Jarvis, and Megan Lapp. Music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions, Ben Cosgrove, and Breakmaster Cylinder. Windfall and Outside In are productions of New Hampshire Public Radio, which is supported by you, our listeners. If you like what you're hearing, make a donation to support us. There's a link in the show notes or at our website, windfallpodcast.org. everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox, There are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too.
And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.